get going in our second lesson from Ephesians. Last week we started with a grace and peace lesson and introduced the book. I did something today that I rarely do, and that's go back and listen to last week. The Tuesdays are the only sermons I ever post that I don't listen to. And that's simply because for timing purposes, when I get home on a Tuesday night, I start, I just do the basics of editing, just drop in lower thirds, tweak the sound, fix the color, trim everything off, all the shenanigans we do at the front of the hour. Uh, that's got to be edited out. And then the post shenanigans. So all that sort of gets clipped. And then I send that out. And then by the time you go to bed, it's compressing. And the time you get up, boom, you go to Utah. I just try to get it out quickly so that the audience gets Wednesday, gets it Wednesday morning. Um, and so I don't listen to them. Um, it's the only ones I do that with. Everything else we ever put out, I fully edit and walk all the way through. So a lot of times... I rely on the fact that I just said it so I can even make a note to myself like, okay, maybe you don't want to put that out. So if you need to do a little extra editing tonight, you know, clip through that line. So I really try to control myself then I have to do that. Um, So today I went back and listened to last week just because we're in a new book and just to get a feel, get our foot in the right spot for this. And, um, I don't want to do any review. I think we laid out Ephesians pretty well. Um, and that's why I went back to listen to it. Because you, you can get ahead of yourself a little bit. I'm prone to do that in these books a little bit. Go to the left, go to the right, instead of stay in center. So um, if you didn't see or listen to last week and you're watching, I highly recommend Studies in Ephesians number 1, Grace and Peace, just for the outline alone of what I think Paul's trying to do. Um, the second thing, the reason why I even brought that up is because we, we talked last at the end of that lesson last week about the fact that grace and peace should sort of be the centerpiece of the gospel. And that if done correctly, grace can't be earned. If done incorrectly, people think they can earn grace. That was Paul's great argument from Romans is that if it's debt, it's not grace. He said, if it's debt, it's works. So if God owes you, don't call it grace. And so anything that, that we present and call it the gospel and there's an element of you must do this in order for God to forgive, in order for God to heal, in order for God to do, is what people try to often call mixture. Um, I don't know that I like the term mixture. I think it's been overused. I think we're so afraid of the word mixture that if anyone says anything that doesn't use the word grace, we think that's mixture. So, but my point there is it's not the gospel if it's not grace. And so don't qualify grace and peace. With that said, then I spring into this tonight. If grace and peace are the centerpiece of the gospel, the central figure in this play, in this story, the main character, is always Jesus. There can be nothing else. If grace and peace is what we are preaching, the centerpiece is Jesus. If works and performance is what we're preaching, the centerpiece is you. And this is where we flip this around a little bit sometimes in the church, is we've made people the centerpiece of the church. It's how we come up with the idea of seeker-sensitive or you know, seeker-friendly. Like we're trying to make service about the person. What makes the person comfortable? What makes the person want to come back? What makes the person want more? And I, I, I respect the idea. I, I, I've been in church growth, and it's important to understand that it needs to be an environment people don't hate, and they don't want to be uncomfortable, and they don't want to come in and, you know, feel like they got to work to just to worship or listen to a sermon. You try to make it appealing and appease that, that side of us. That, and I get that. We need that. 
But there's a fine tension that has to constantly be worked with, I think, in the gospel. And that is that this thing is about Jesus. It's about how you receive Jesus, yes, but it's about Jesus. It's about Christ. At the end of the day, at the end of the song, at the end of the sermon, it's a, it's, it's our central figure is Christ. So like one preacher once said, preachers tell a good story and make Jesus the star. And so I always try to remember that when I preach. Tell a good story. Let the story tell itself, maybe. Make Jesus the star. And you say, well, yeah, that's good. But we don't do it very often. We tell stories and we make us the star. The preacher makes himself the star. We make you the star. We make it all about how you deal and what you're going to do. And I don't see it as the way Paul presented the gospel. And, and I certainly don't see it as the way Jesus presented himself. And so we strive to put him back in the center. I say all of that because we're going to talk tonight about adoption as sons. But I say this coming at you from this idea, the, the phrase in him is the most repeated phrase in the book of Ephesians. In him, in Christ, in God, in the Father, this prepositional phrase in, in, in. Why? Because Paul is pushing Jesus forward as the centerpiece of the message. In Christ, we have these things. In God, we have this love. In the Father, we have this forgiveness. So it's great to brag about, you're going to hear me talk about your heavenly bank account. We talked about that last week. We're going to, we're going to be in this bank account for a few weeks. You've got some stuff in glory, so to speak, that belongs to you, that's paid for by Jesus. But you can never forget that it's not a collection of theological thoughts. I've got my righteousness over here. I got my justification. I got my sanctification. I got my forgiveness. I got my adoption. They are all ours because of Jesus. Christ is the center pole. And then everything just branches off of who he is. So if you want to know about your adoption, you want to know about your inheritance, you want to know about your forgiveness, you want to know about your righteousness, they're great topics. But, but don't start at the edge of the tree. Start at the trunk. Go to Jesus. So we go back to Jesus. We learn what it means to be in him. We learn what it means to be in Christ, to be in the Father. And then as we do that, everything branches out for this. So I'm, I'm a believer that if we were to introduce people to the person of Jesus and get infatuated with Jesus, I don't mean all the other things would take care of themselves, but we would have something to work with that's way better than just try harder, just read some more scriptures, just give into this program, just sign up for this ministry. Instead, it would be... I, I'm. A Jesus person and I'd like to see us return to it it is my prayer for the church because I have been trying in these months to, to really and I mean the last several months especially to really narrow down what is it Paul that you're looking for what is it that you want to see out of the church Because I'm a lover of the church I think she's the best idea in the world and I think she's an expression of the kingdom unparalleled on the planet I don't think I think everything the world does in camaraderie teamwork business building civic organization, they're all a cheap copy of the church. I really think that the church is the, is the forefront of what an organism looks like. The best the world can do is organize. And, but then there's this organism of the church, that this living, breathing, moving thing. We've made it 20 centuries through all kinds of turmoil and tribulation and persecution. You, you can't be stopped by an election. 
You can't be stopped by a, a Congress or a Supreme Court or a, or, or, or a law that is made or not made. We've so cheapened our idea of what the church is that we think those things actually make the church or break the church. I love the church. I think she's a great expression of the kingdom. But I'm trying to answer that question. What am I looking for? What am I looking for? This is my church in a way, uh, in, in ways I couldn't have even comprehended a few years ago. So I, I, I think my landing spot is an obsession with Jesus. <laughs> so I was just looking to be a person obsessed with the person of Jesus because this is why I'm following him. I used to would have told you that I, I follow Jesus so I wouldn't go to hell. And I, I don't follow Jesus so I won't go to hell. I have followed Jesus so I could come out of hell a time or two. Uh, I follow Jesus every time I find myself in hell uh, because... Shockingly, every time I find myself in hell, he's there with me. That's David's statement of when I make my bed in hell, I look over and who's laying next to me? God. But to be obsessed with him. So I don't know how much that has to do with adoption of sons, but I wanted to throw it out there because it's one of those things I'm going to repeat over and over in Ephesians. In him, in him, in him, in him, in him. In Christ, this whole thing is in Christ. You can't understand what it means to be adopted if we don't understand what it means to be in Christ. So let's read a few verses from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. We read them from the New King James. We're going to visit the message here in a moment as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be the amplified version right here changes the S, the, the drops SH and puts W, that we would be holy and without blame before Him in love. I don't know that we have to worry about parsing too much right here. I'll say a little bit more about this in a moment, but whether you land on would be or should be, um, the point of it is that we're in Christ. So whatever's in Christ is going to be holy and is going to be without blame. So this is what I said by if we can just get people in Christ, some of the arguments about what things mean don't seem as important because it's hard to imagine that you're in Christ and not holy. That you're in Christ and, and there is blame. So if you can get people in Christ first, then some of those other things. I think part of the reason we're fighting about whether or not, what is holiness? Is holiness clothes? Is holiness hair? Is holiness movies? Is holiness what you listen to? And that's because we're assuming holiness is something that can be achieved outside of Christ. In Christ, you're holy. The other things start to work themselves out as the centerpiece becomes Christ. And so that we would be, should be holy and without blame before him in love. We'll break that down in a moment. Five and six, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. There's our title, adoption as sons according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. And, and we read a little more than we need because we're going to start to unpack your heavenly bank account. There's a lot of things that are yours in spiritual places. You've been made to set with Him in heavenly places. It belongs to you whether you're using it or not. It belongs to you whether you know it or not. If I can get you to realize you're in Christ, then the stuff will start to make sense. If you don't think you're in Christ, the stuff won't make sense. If you're not in Christ, then who cares what your heavenly bank account has? You can't sign the check. If you're in Christ, it's time to know what's in your heavenly bank account. You've been made a joint heir with Christ, so therefore whatever is there 
belongs to you. So we're going to work on some of these ideas as we go. Let me start with the idea, verse 3, of spiritual... Go, go back just one, one second. Uh, bless me to God and Father. Bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I, just, I want to say a couple things about verses 3 and 4 before we really land on the heartbeat of tonight's lesson. And that's... Let's start here. Spiritual blessings in the heavenly places doesn't do me any good if the spirit doesn't invade the physical. So if, if all I have is spiritual blessings in heavenly places, then I have a head full of theology. And this is the main argument against religion, is that all it is is a bunch of stuff out there in the invisible, and you're trying really hard to get it, and you don't know if you get it till you die. So I don't think it's that exciting to think I've got a bunch of spiritual blessings. Unless the spiritual blessings make a difference in my physical man. So if I have spiritual blessings in heavenly places and I get them when I get to heaven, great. But if I have spiritual blessings in heavenly places and I get access to them in the physical, they somehow make a difference down here. Well, then they're worth talking about. Otherwise, Christianity is this heady thing that's out there and who cares what you know or don't know because you don't get it till you die anyway. But that can't be the case. Otherwise, we said this last week. Otherwise, why are we encouraged to walk this out if it doesn't affect our walk? And so the fact that we're encouraged to walk this out means that my spiritual blessings invade my physical, you could say, affects my spiritual. Because, and this is, the, this is a, 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 a hint in the biblical narrative from the very beginning. Remember this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. We get so lost in trying to figure out why the earth is dark and void. So we come up with all these ideas about the devil fell and an ice age covered the planet in darkness and the sun couldn't shine anymore. And we miss the point because the next verse says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters and God spoke. What, what's the point? The point is, is that chaos and darkness is your baseline. It's like what happens in life. Darkness and chaos and death. And the Spirit of God hovers over that so that what is in the heavenlies can become what is in the natural. So the Spirit of God hovers over all your chaos and speaks into your darkness so that the Word becomes flesh. If I have gifts in heavenly places that don't become something in the natural, then there's no reason to brag about the Word became flesh. Jesus is the physical manifestation of spiritual gifts in the heavens Christ shows us that it is possible for man to walk on this earth and tap into his spiritual bank account. And it starts by realizing that the Spirit of God always hovers over whatever's wrong with us and speaks life into it. Therefore, the Spirit hovers over the natural and the natural pays attention. Because Genesis then explodes with water and land parting, animals coming up out of the dirt, God making man. The physical responds to the spiritual. Therefore, you have things in heavenly places. Let's start to see if we can get a hold of some of them. Somehow, some way. And we do this in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The other one is verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him. And I just one more time want to emphasize the idea that it is in Him that we are holy. In Him that we are blameless. All of this comes because of Christ. Let's start there. That's where we are. All right. So if we're in him, then we are in the beloved. And if we're in the beloved, we must be loved. I think this holy and blameless in him is what I call the language of love. 
I use my own kids as an example, all right? And you use your kids. But just, I mean, you think about this in terms of parental love. Let's just start there. There's all kinds of love, but we're going to stay with this one for a second. My children are holy and without blame. I put this part in parentheses. My children are holy in that they are set apart. That's what holy means, by the way. Holy doesn't mean untouchable. Holy means set apart for service. My kids are holy, and I'm giving it away. You can already read it, but giving it away is they're only really holy to me. All right? Yours are holy to you. What I mean by that is mine are set apart to me. Yours are set apart to you. Mine are without blame. That means they're whole. They're a whole person. They're, they are entirely everything I dream of. They are whole and without blemish. I'm using the same language that is used by Paul. What, is, what are we? Holy and without blame in Christ. It doesn't mean that you think of my kids that way. In the eyes of others, they're not holy and blameless. But it doesn't matter about the eyes of others because they're in me. I'm holy and blameless in the eyes of God because I'm in Christ. Which means that I'm not going to be holy and blameless in your eyes. If you watch me long enough, I'm not going to look set apart and whole and spotless. Because if you watch me long enough, you're going to see that in some ways I'm not at all set apart. I'm compromised. I'm flawed. I'm broken. I'm fallen. I'm certainly not whole. There's parts of me that have been shot and destroyed and scarred, dark, empty. And I'm not blameless because there's faults and failures and I need forgiveness. And you won't have to watch me long to pick up on that. But that's through your eyes because I'm not in you. But I'm in Christ. So in Christ, as his kid, I'm set apart and I'm without blemish. I say that I say you need to do this with your own kids for this reason, because the illustration works really only works this way. My kids are holy and whole in my eyes, meaning they're set apart, separate from the way I think of your kids. Set apart in the way I love. Your kids are fine, but I don't love them like I love mine. You flip that around. <laughs> Of course you flip that around. You don't even have to be taught that. Yes, mine are holy and set apart. Why am I saying this? This isn't an applause of any of our kids. It's so that we'll understand if we're in Christ, that's why you can say you're holy. But we don't do that. A lot of times we'll, we think holiness is dress and movies and makeup and songs and music and cussing and sex and whatever. And we go, well, that's, you know, this world's unholy. And that doesn't have anything to do with holy in the eyes of Christ, but in his eyes, we are set apart. In the eyes of others, not so much. And, and I don't know anybody um, that I'm not in familial relationship that I would call holy and whole. Because if I stare at you long enough, I'm going to find reasons to go, eh, eh. They're not that special. You know, and that's just the way it is. But, but you're not in me. And the danger in us identifying too closely with another person as our identity, as our Christianity, as our faith, 
is that we are eventually going to be disappointed because only in Christ are we holy and blameless. But here's good news. In Christ, you are holy and you are blameless. In Christ, you're his kids and he loves his kids immensely. And in his eyes, his kids are set apart. In his eyes, his kids are holy and blameless. And they may not be that way in anybody else's eyes, but that's okay. They're not anybody else's kids. This is why we need to go back to in him. We get in him, we can start to understand this. Let's read this in the message. Same set of scriptures. That's like Eugene Peterson's style. How blessed is God? What a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, who takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. I really just want you to see the middle. I, long before he laid down the foundation of the earth, he had us in mind, settled us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. That's what we do with things we love. We make them the sole focus of our love so that by our love, they become the best version of themselves. So shower people in the love of God. This goes right back to last week. Shower them in grace and peace that they don't deserve. Shower them in the grace and peace because it's the expression of God's love. It's the language of God's love. People will begin to see themselves as holy and without blemish only when they are experiencing that kind of love. So Let's give the main verse for tonight from the New King James again. It's verse 5. Having predestined us to, and if you haven't caught it or underlined it, there it is. Adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will. I don't want to hold you all night on this. I'm intentionally not trying to cover a ton of ground. We're not going deep, deep, deep each night into the verses. kind of feel like the best way to un- understand your bank accounts is one concept at a time. And I am going to try to be true to what we said last week. Take the principle and apply it. It's not about just giving you identity, identity, stacks of identity and no application. So instead, a little bit of identity, a little bit of application, so that you realize that Paul's writing to himself, front of the book, back of the book. Here's who you are. Here's what you ought to do with it. Here's more of who you are. Here's some more of what you ought to do with it. So to try and keep from piling too much on, Uh, I want to talk about adoption for a second. Let's talk about it from a Jewish perspective and then a Roman perspective. Number one, there is no adoption in Jewish law. This doesn't exist. There's no word for adoption in the ancient Hebrew even. The word that is used for adoption in Hebrew wasn't even invented until the modern era. Um, The word that is actually used is built off of an old Hebrew root word meaning to make strong. And so when adoption became more common in the world, the Hebrews had to come up with a word. And so they used a root word meaning to make strong, and they built the Hebrew word for adoption out of that. That's fascinating to me. In other words, they viewed adoption as the way to make yourself stronger. So that by adopting someone into your family, you strengthened your family. You actually made your world stronger by bringing someone in. But there is actually no law in the Torah for adoption. There's no word in the Torah for adoption, but there is most certainly the practice of taking in others as full members of the inheritance. I'll give you just a few examples. 
And you can find a whole lot of others. There's one where Abraham has yet to have Isaac. And he goes to God and says, you told me I was going to have a lot of kids. You told me that my kids were going to number like the stars of the sky. If I don't hear from you soon, I'm going to give it all to Eliezer. And Eliezer is his servant, not a blood relative. And God doesn't reprimand Abraham for this. It's just in his consciousness that this is what we do. Now, he's not technically a Hebrew. Abraham's not. He's a Gentile that's been called out of the Gentile world. So in a way, we're just talking about secular adoption, which was, if you don't have any kids, you got to leave it to somebody. And so I'll leave it to Eliezer. But as the Hebrews become a people, Jacob does this over his grandkids. Remember, when old Jacob is dying and he blesses his sons, calls them all in and talks over them. Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh in to Jacob and Jacob puts them in as firstborn sons. So it's grandpa blessing his grandsons and bringing them in underneath his first name, underneath his family name as an adoption of sorts. Another one could be the the, uh, Esther-Mordecai relationship from the little book of Esther where Mordecai takes care of his niece, Esther. And then when her parents die, the Bible says he takes her into his own house, which was a fancy way of saying he raised her like she was his own kid. The Hebrews didn't have a word for it. They didn't say adoption. They just said you bring them into your own house. So what they were talking about was bringing somebody in and taking care of them and making making them a part of your life. Uh, The practice made the adoptive parents, and I'm using this word very loosely because, again, there's no word for it. We got to use something. The practice made the adoptive parents responsible for the future of the kid, but it didn't sever connection with the biological. So the idea was that whoever you were birthed by were actually your parents. We're just going to help shape you from here on out. That's kind of the world into which this happened. And then here comes Paul, who's a Roman citizen. And so Paul starts using the phrase adoption over and over and over again. In fact, he uses it in multiple letters. But Paul's a Hebrew, and Hebrews don't have adoption. So what's Paul talking about? But Paul's also a Roman, and Romans do have adoption. And so it's very likely that when Paul writes about adoption in the New Testament, he's using secular adoption to prove a spiritual point. And so I want to talk to you for a second about secular adoption. By contrast, here's an example. Roman adoption was very common. And Roman adoption was also all-encompassing. First example, whatever you had, became the property of the adoptive father. So if a Roman adopted you, whatever you had become a part of what that Roman paterfamilias, paternal head of the family, whatever the paternal head of the family uh, said was his, was his. So whatever you brought in, he took it unto himself. Let me break a few of those down. For instance, here's just a few examples. This is Roman adoption. This is the only one Paul knows. So it's got to be what he's talking. There's no Hebrew adoption. So if he's talking about you're the adoption of sons, it's this kind of stuff. First of all, the Romans almost never adopted babies. That's a very Western world thing to do. Okay, We adopt babies so that we can raise children from infants to adults. The Romans never adopted babies. I say never. There's always going to be an example that breaks the mold outside the norm. But for the most part, they only adopted adults. This is why in the book of Galatians, when Paul tells you that you've been adopted into the family of God, he uses the Greek word fully grown sons. He doesn't use the word for infant. He uses the word for adults. You've been adopted as fully grown sons into the family because he's using Roman ideas. 
And in Roman ideas, you didn't, birth, you didn't adopt infants. Why? Just think about it. Why wouldn't you adopt an infant? They didn't offer you anything. They didn't have anything. And infants didn't live very long. Child mortality rate was extremely high. You were, the, the odds of making it to five were, were probably less than half in the ancient world. Parents oftentimes didn't even name their kids until they were several years old because there was a really good chance they weren't going to make it. You weren't going to adopt an infant for fear that you would lose it. And also, it didn't bring anything to the table. You adopted adults who brought something with them. I'm bringing all of this up because it's going to come to a head when you start to think about why Paul would call you adopted. You must bring something to God. I'm going to go ahead and give you the hint now. Whatever one of these are, just kind of insert why would Paul have called, used adoption. Okay, you don't get adopted in as just babies. He must have brought you in because you had something to offer. So, you don't just dump everything off that you were when you come to Christ. You bring what you were when you come to Christ and it enters into Christ. What's usable is usable. What isn't usable, he will prune. But there are some great and wonderful things we bring to the table and we've been adopted in as fully grown sons. Second one, adoption eliminated, it, just, it eliminated your debt, but it also eliminated all of your other responsibilities. When you were brought in to the paterfamilias, when the head of the family brought you in, he assumed whatever was right with you and he assumed whatever was wrong with you. So if you owed, he owed. So you had to be pretty careful about who you adopted. But it was also a way that people could relieve themselves from soul-crushing debt was to allow themselves to be adopted into someone's family who would take unto themselves whatever that debt is. When Paul calls you adopted as sons, he's saying that whatever debt you have in the realm of spiritual things, you bring them to the Father and he assumes your debt. Pretty good, pretty good stuff. Sounds like something you can cash in on the natural. So whatever debt that I feel I owe in the Spirit is gone in Christ. This is why we've got to preach Jesus to people. So that you realize that in Christ, He assumes whatever you have that you think is wrong with you. He assumes it as being in Him. Uh, only Roman men could adopt. Roman women could not adopt. This could be the reason why we don't have a maternal aspect of God in Hebrew Scriptures. Because... Scriptures are culturally bound. you got to remember this. They're culturally bound by the writer, by whatever era, time of the world that they are in. In the time of the world that the Scriptures are laid down, the woman has no, no rights. At, there, there is no maternal head of the family. And there's only the paternal head of the family. So only the father could adopt. And this is why we see constant New Testament references to Father God. I actually don't have a problem. If you want to say Mother God, knock yourself out. I, I don't care one way or the other, and I can't imagine the God that creates both male and female gets all offended if you see a maternal side in the Father. And I think William Paul Young did a pretty good job of that in the shack, uh, of showing, getting at least some Christians for the first time in their lives. And I remember people, when that book and that film came out, totally offended that God could possibly be female, and I think they were a little offended that God could be black. <laughs> I think they were willing to say they were offended God was a female. They just were a little quiet to say they were offended thinking God was black. Wait till you see what Jesus probably looked like when he was on the earth as a Middle Eastern man living in his part of the world in the time that he did. 
oh, and being Jewish. Um, so, so if all that stuff bothers you or offends you, uh, you got a rough way to go. But the reason why we see Father God in the text is not because God is writing through some sexist lens, but because the only one that had the power to adopt you out of whatever you were in was the Father. So if you want to give the authority of someone who purchased you out of whatever you were in, you need to call him Father God in the text. Because people would have thought, ooh, a father can buy me out of whatever my issue is. And so Father God becomes the adoptive God. Adoption gave full inheritance. So there was no such thing as you come in, but you're not, you don't get as much as the biological kids. This is actually a fascinating part of Roman adoption, I think. We have written record that Roman adoption actually gave more to the adopted sons than the biological sons. To be adopted was to get the whole shoot and match. Because adoption was the chosen kid. And Paul said, you were chosen in him from the foundation of the world to receive adoption of sons. Paul's leaning into the Roman idea of adoption going, God has natural kids. Paul, I think Paul's talking of his own Jewish roots because the Jewish Judaism looked at themselves as the natural sons of God. But Paul goes, you know, what's better than being the natural sons of God. He goes, is being the adopted sons of God because the adopted sons were chosen. They weren't picked as infants. They were picked as adults. They were picked in spite of their debt. They were picked in spite of their problems. They were picked even though they might not have been worthy, worth it, but they've been picked. And if they've been picked, and, you, and he goes, by the way, you've been picked. He goes, you come in, and what you would understand about Roman adoption is full inheritance. You get it all. And finally, women were not adopted. It's, we have a very sparse Roman record of women ever being adopted, and we might have such a poor record of it because no one bothered to write it down. And the reason they wouldn't write it down is because the women couldn't be the head of the family and they couldn't inherit. And so why write down that you adopted a girl? So it was rarely done or they just rarely talked about it. You go, well, what's that got to do with us as believers? Well, because there's a reason why Paul says you're adopted as sons. Because you've received the adoption as sons. Why does he say you've, been, you've received the adoption of children? Or why does he say you've received the adoption of girls? Why didn't he say you've received the adoption of daughters? Because the moment he invokes the phrase adoption of sons, his audience thinks inheritance. The adoption of sons means I get it all. So when Paul says in Christ, you've been adopted as sons, he's not being sexist. He's using Roman language to go, what's it mean if you're a Roman and you get adopted as a son? He goes, man, it means you get it all and you get full inheritance. So when he says you've been adopted into Christ, into the Father, through Christ as sons, it means you get it all. John said it this way. I'm going to use a few scriptures when we close. John said it like this in John 1, as many as received him, to them he gave them the right, that word is also authority, to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, they were not born of blood. They were not born by the will of the flesh. They were not even born by the will of man. They were born by God. What a statement. So John goes, as many as believe on Christ, they get the adoption. They get to come in. John doesn't use the word adoption here, but he kind of does. Paul just leans into being a Roman when he talks adoption. The Jews don't have a word for it. So what's John say instead? They're not born of blood. They're not born of the flesh. They're not born of man. They're born of God. In other words, they didn't, get, they didn't come in through the normal way. They came in through a supernatural way. 
They came in by believing in Christ. They received the adoption of sons. Paul would say it this way to the Galatians. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, doesn't differ at all from the slave, though he's master of all. The man is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. In other words, the, the son might as well be a slave because until he's an adult, he's nothing. Which that was the way the world was in that day. The littlest loser in the world was anybody under the age of adulthood, which some cultures was 13. Some cultures might have been closer to 18. That's why Jesus put some kids on his knee and went, unless you become his little children, you know why he's entered the kingdom. He didn't mean unless you got chubby cheeks and you laugh and run around, play cars all the time. No, he meant unless you're a little loser, you don't get in. The littlest losers in the world are kids. We don't see it that way in our culture. That's it. Verse 3, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So we used to be as if slaves, not full inheritance. Paul's talking to his Jewish brethren. And then something happens. Verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem everyone who was under the law so that we might then get to be adopted. So he goes, we were already born into the family, but it wasn't good enough. We needed Jesus. And now we've been adopted into Christ, received full adoption as sons, six and seven. And because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And yes, Abba is close. It's as close as we get to daddy. Therefore, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. And if you're a son, and this is what Paul's trying to say to the Ephesians, then you get it all. That's an heir of God through Christ. You get it all. So what do we do with this? I'm adopted as a son. I have rights as a son. I'm, I got my dad's name. Well, if you jump to the back half of Ephesians, Paul gives a lot of instruction. There's a lot of spots we could have landed, but for tonight, we land here. So what will we do with this? From Ephesians 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You used to be one thing, but now you're another thing. You used to see only through the lens of the dark. Now you see through the lens of light. Why? Because you're a child of the light. How do you know? You've been adopted. You've been adopted into the family, therefore you're not what you used to be. So walk as if you are a child of light. And look what happens when you start to walk that out. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness, righteousness, truth. And you'll find out what's acceptable to the Lord. So, if you knew you were a son, you'd have the strength to walk in a light you didn't have before. And out of that starts to come the fruit of the Spirit. I don't think Paul's trying to list off all of the fruit. He gives you a few. You want all the fruit? Go to Galatians 5, companion letter. But the fruit of the Spirit comes out in us as we know we are His sons. So it's not just enough for me to go, I've been adopted into the family of God. I know who I am. No, it's now up to me, because I've been adopted, to walk that out as light in a dark world and let the fruit of that knowledge come out in my day-to-day -day journey. So I love the idea that I'm adopted. But I don't want to stop at the knowledge that I'm adopted. I want to, by knowing that I'm adopted, allow that adoption to influence my neighbor, to influence my relationships, to influence my, my conflicts, my troubles, my struggles. We're not talking about a life void of problems, but a life in which we are the light in a world full of darkness and that comes by knowing that we're part of the family. And as we know that we're part of the family, that fruit begins to come out in our life.
Let's pray application. Because part of it is knowledge, part of it is application. So what we've tried to do is work on knowledge and then give you some application. But I think true application comes in prayer because that's spiritual formation. Let's pray that. Father, I thank you tonight for the word. And I thank you for this great knowledge that in my heavenly bank account, I'm an adopted son. That means I get it all. But that's not enough for my day-to-day life just to know that. But in knowing that, I can start to live that out. So teach me through your spiritual forming, teach me what it means to live out the light, to walk this out, this specific piece of knowledge. I am your son. And not, not, it's not gender reflective. It means I'm an inheritor. What would I do in the world if I actually thought I'm an inheritor of the light. What difference would that make when I face the darkness? And Father, that's the spiritual formation we ask for because I think it's the only one that's going to matter in in Jesus' name. Amen.